Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive thankfully the fruits of his redeeming work and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the Collect appointed for today, August the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are um, had a good week this week. I went to uh, Chattanooga for a couple of days and enjoyed that, um, spending time with old friends and family, and it was just a really good couple of days. It was nice to get away and all that kind of stuff, and so uh, it, it was good. It was really good. So anyway, just had a, had a good week otherwise, too, and nothing particularly exciting going on in life at the moment, but uh, that's all right, too. So we um, we were able to get out and um, hike every day, uh, pretty much, I think. Uh, not while I was in Chattanooga, because that was a little too busy. But anyway, otherwise, it was good. They've got, got some things coming up over the next few weeks that, that I'm uh, excited about and glad to be part of. So anyway, I hope you've had a good week. I hope that, it, um, that hopefully we're getting towards the end of summer. It's a nice, nice weekend here in Asheville. It's going to be in the 70s the next couple of days. So it's been um, certainly different than, than things have been for the last little bit. It's, it's much cooler and nicer and a lot less um, humidity because we had a really good rain the other day, kind of washed everything out, cleaned everything up. The haze is gone from the mountains, and it's just going to be a beautiful weekend. So anyway, um, so today what we're going to look at, we're going to kind of continue to talk about what does it mean to live a life of faith. Um, And again, faith is not believing in something for which there's no evidence that's that's not what faith is, not properly at least, not in not in the Christian sense, because we do have evidence. <laughs> the evidence is the empty tomb. The evidence um, is the witness of those who saw the resurrected Jesus, interacted with the resurrected Jesus, um, and who told their stories in living memory of those who could have disputed those stories and codified those things for us, and then the continuing witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that, that will convince us of the same truths that, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So Thomas said, I won't believe until I see. Well, the Holy Spirit allows us to see in the same way that Paul was allowed to see. So it, it's that witness of the Holy Spirit to the truth of the eyewitness accounts. That's what faith is. It's, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable us to believe no less certainly than the disciples who saw Jesus did. So it's to take their testimony and to run with it and to, to make it our own testimony to him. That's what faith actually is. So it, when we look at this today, I mean, one of the things that I'd really love to do is to take some time and look at Psalm 82, which is the psalm for today. But I don't have time, honestly, to do that because we, we when I, because I read the lessons and, and go through those lessons, then you know whether or not I'm misrepresenting what's there. You know, you don't have to go and look and watch and all that kind of stuff. But I just don't have time to do this the psalm as well. But there's a lot in that psalm, and, and if you begin to look at it, then you begin to maybe form sort of a different theology that'll that'll allow you to understand some different things like for instance when paul speaks about uh, what shall keep us from the love of god and one of the things that he mentions is angels and things in the heavens 
wait, why would angels and heavenlies keep us from understanding and the knowledge and the love of God? That, that's an interesting thought. And, and Psalm 82 has something to say about that because it speaks about the divine counsel and God is in the midst of the gods. And then ultimately, he says, I said, your gods, sons are the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So who are these that he's speaking with? These are the sons of the most high. These, these would be angelic beings, heavenly beings that are being judged there. And so what we need to understand is, is that, that we need to keep our eyes fixed on faith, absolutely fixed on faith and truth, and, and not deny those truths and understand that ultimately Jesus will be King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. These are places where that's currently not true. And so it will be. And that's the way that we need to think about the way that we run the race of our lives, and that's going to be ultimately the, um, the takeaway. So at any rate, let's start with Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 23, um, verses 23 to 29, and, and God asks a very simple question to begin this. He says, am I, not, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? In other words, what he's saying is, I'm both these things. I'm, I'm a God at hand, and I'm also a God far away. And, and that's what we know in theological terms. We speak of the imminence of God, the nearness of God, the presence of God here on earth, among us, in us. And that would be the Holy Spirit that we're talking about there. But he's also a God far away in, in a sense that, that he is distant from his creation because his creation is fallen. Ultimately, in the renewed creation, we'll only experience and know the imminence of God. But he can't be among us now because of the sinfulness of humanity. So that, that requires some things to happen. And so that's why we pay, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we, we want to see earth and heaven merge into one, as it was when the original, Adam and Eve, were in the garden, and the Lord walked among them. And then sin came into the world and changed all of that. And so, so we, we appreciate and celebrate the eminence of God, while also we stand in appreciation and in awe of the transcendence of God. That is, he's bigger than his creation, but he fills his entire creation. So he goes on to say, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. In other words, I'm not missing anything that's going on. You, you can't hide from me, and you can't hide your deeds from me. And that's what David celebrates in Psalm 139 when he says, where do I go to hide from you? And he says, if I, if I go to Sheol and make my bed there in the place of the dead, then, then you're there as well. If I go to the heavens, you're there. No matter where I go, you are there. And then ultimately what David finds in that is comfort. Comfort. He is comforted by the knowledge of, that he can't go anywhere to hide from the living God. And I've told this story before, I'm sure, but, but years ago now, 30 years ago, I had wandered away from the Lord, just, just didn't give him any thought. I went to church and all that kind of stuff, but I really didn't give it much thought at all, and, and it was certainly not a defining part of my life. And then um, I began to—I made a deal with the Lord that, that I knew I wasn't finding the fulfillment my soul needed— in the places I was looking for it, which is self-help books, stuff like that, seeking after success, basically, more and more and more. And the more I had, the more I wanted. 
you know, and, and so I realized, though, that that was never going to fill the void in my life. And so I, I began to I made a deal with the Lord that I'll read the Bible, but I'm not going to read the New Testament because I didn't want to have to deal with Jesus. And I made it through uh, Genesis quickly. And then I got to I am when God makes the declaration of his name. And I realized that very truth. And, and I was undone by that truth. And it was only several days later that I had an experience of the Holy Spirit that, that allowed me to to recognize and, and realize my own forgiveness, the forgiveness that God had for me who had wandered astray from him. And so it's a comforting thing that God fills heaven and earth. He said, I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, that they tell one another, even as their fathers forget my name for Baal? So what God's saying is, is these are false prophets, and they continue to talk about their dreams, their dreams, their dreams. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I'm tired of, of some of the prophets who have become popular in on the right side, and when I say the right, I mean the 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 right and left side of things. Um, all these people who who for months and months and months prophesied certain things concerning the 2016 election, and who now are, are still convinced in some weird way that Donald Trump is uh, president and whatever all this other stuff that's going on. I, I want to speak into that and to say that that the more someone prophesies about a human being as though they were some sort of messianic figure, the greater the lie, the greater the lie. And we have to be careful about that. We can't allow that in our midst. We, we as Christians need to have better discernment than that. Um, you have one Messiah and his name is Jesus. And we pray not for anybody else's kingdom to come, but only Jesus's kingdom to come. Everybody else is just like us. They're a man. They're fallible. They're a woman. They're fallible. It's it, We've got to become more discerning. And, and what it does, it, the more that we lean into those things, the more we're leaning into something that should tell us that, that our hearts have gone astray as well. And we need to lean away from that. We need to lean away from uh, believing that there's an earthly Messiah. He's already been here. And he will come again. And so God goes on to say, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And it is. And it causes division. It divides between joints and marrow. It does all those things. His word is a two-edged sword that divides these things. And we need to hear that. We, we need to rest in God's word, not some other word, not some word of a prophet that speaks to their wish-dream fulfillment that tells you more about their politics than it does about their walk with the Lord. And we, we need to be careful, and we need to go into these things with, with our eyes and our ears open. And I've seen too many people deceived by these things. There's so much deception in our world today, and it's not just on the right, it's on both sides. But, but I'm particularly in tune, because I have so many friends who are particularly in tune with it, to, to those prophets who, who speak these things. And, and we need to back away from that and move in a different direction. We need to seek after the kingdom of God, not some man's kingdom. The in the 
gospel today. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. And that's exactly what we just read. It's not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. That, that sounds a lot like what John the Baptist said would be the ministry of the one who is to come, the one who will, who will make divisions between people. And some will be thrown away and cast into the fire. Others will be pruned in order that they might bear more fruit. But John was very clear that his belief was this one was coming to bring judgment on the earth. And he has. That's the honest truth. And that's what Jesus is going to say now. He doesn't judge. He's leaving that up to the Father. He will come as judge and he will be the judge. But Paul says we'll judge angels. In, in this passage, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And, and Jesus is longing for the kingdom. That's what that means, the establishment of God's kingdom. I wish that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And what is that baptism? And he has already been baptized by John. So what is the baptism that Jesus is speaking of? He's speaking of the cross. He's speaking of the cross. He's speaking of death. And that's the baptism we go through as well. We go from death. That's the symbolism in, in the, the putting the person underwater and then bringing him back up. It's, from, it's a resurrection from death to life as a new creation. You put to death the old and you put on the new. You put on Christ. And Jesus says that he has that baptism to be baptized with. And so judgment begins right there at the cross. When we, human beings, make a judgment about Jesus and nail him to the cross, we, divide, we, we decide that he is a sinner, the one who is perfect, without blemish or spot, without sin. And we put him on that cross because we've determined him to be a blasphemer. Well, the reality is the resurrection says he's not a blasphemer, he's God. He is the incarnate Son of God who is resurrected from the dead. And so his baptism is into death so that we might then be baptized into his life. But, but it, it, it separates people. The judgment that we make about Jesus separates us from other people. If we decide and declare that he is the incarnate Son of God, the one in whom we must place our faith if we want eternal life. When we say that, when we say it's this, what they call it is the scandal of particularity, that there is no, none other than Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's the scandal of particularity. That means there's not many ways to the Father. There's only one way to the Father. And when we make that declaration, when we stand in that faith, people aren't going to universally love us because it's a judgment. They hear it as judgment on themselves because they don't share that belief. That's not my problem. It's only my problem to confess that belief and confess that faith. And then let the chips fall where they may. But, but it doesn't mean triumphalism. No, it, it means humility. 
because I recognize that that faith itself, the ability to discern and know that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, whose death on that cross was God's judgment on sin— my sin, the sins of the world, and in him and in his resurrection, we have eternal life, is a gift. The fact that I know any of that and believe any of that and have any certainty in it at all is completely a gift because everybody doesn't have it. There's nothing special about John except for that gift. And so we, we come and make that confession with humility, not triumphalism. Because it should be our desire to see all come to that saving knowledge, the same knowledge that we have. And the proclamation has to be made in love the same way that Jesus made the proclamation. His love on the cross, going to that cross, persevering to the end, keeping his eyes fixed on the prize, which is you. Which is the restoration of all things to the rule of God. The establishment of God's kingdom his eternal kingdom, and the recreation of all things. And that should be our desire, is to proclaim it so clearly and so filled with love that people have to make a choice. They can't reject us because of the way we proclaim. They can't reject us for our lack of love. That's, that, that is not the way to proclaim the truth. He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Ultimately, his kingdom is a peaceable kingdom. But among sinful men and women, that peaceable kingdom isn't possible to be fully established. It should, however, be characteristic of our fellowship with one another, whether in the church or among brothers and sisters who who don't go to the same expression of the local church. But, But we should live when we're together in that peaceable kingdom. And that should be the content of our fellowship with one another. It is the peace that Jesus has established between us and God and us and other believers. And we should not be the cause of division with non-believers. That's a decision they have to make, to be divided and separated from us. It's our goal to reconcile all of humanity to him and to one another. And we do that through the proclamation of Jesus, because then we all submit to his kingship, and we stop the self-seeking and the self-aggrandizement. He says, I, I, I didn't, didn't come to bring peace, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Those are just, you know, it's a repetition of the same thing. But, but what it's expressing is, is that, that that division is going to be complete. And it's not going to be one-sided. He, says, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower's coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there'll be scorching heat because that's coming off the desert in that situation. If it's clouds rising in the west, then it's coming from off the Mediterranean, and it's coming your way, and so it's going to be filled with precipitation. So that's how you know that a shower is going to happen. And when you know that south wind is blowing, then you say it's going to be hot because that's coming off the desert, and it's bringing that with it. He says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And what is it that they're failing to interpret here? They're failing to interpret Jesus. 
they're not recognizing who he is. He says, you know, you, you get these signs and you know these obvious things and everybody in the world knows them and sees them and, and accepts them for what they are, that they're reliable indicators of what's to come. But you're missing it here. You're missing it completely. In, in all the witness that I've given you, in the, in the words that I've spoken, in the things that I've done, and you're still misinterpreting the times. You're still not realizing God himself is among you. The kingdom of God has come into your midst. That, that is what they're missing. It's what they're failing to interpret. And, and it's because in too many cases we listen to other voices rather than the word of God. We spend less time in the word than we do on Twitter. We spend less time in the Word than we do watching television, you know, watching the TV news, consuming the news of the day. And everybody who tells you the news of the day has their own particular slant on it. The only way to navigate these times when we're being lied to constantly by everybody in power, the only way to navigate those times is to listen to His voice. And then we can begin to interpret the times better. And we, we can begin to see more clearly. And we can begin to see the need for the coming of his kingdom more clearly. But then we can also see the inbreaking of his kingdom because it continues to advance even to the present day. And we need to be wise to those things rather than preoccupied with things of earth. If we preoccupy ourselves with the things of earth, then we're dependent upon other sources to tell us these things. And then how do we interpret those things? If we stay focused and fixed on him, then we can navigate life better because we're not being misled and we're not being deceived. In the passage from Hebrews today, we're in Hebrews 11, verse 29 through chapter 12, verse 2, and we're continuing with the sort of the roll call of faith and what does it mean to live by faith. He says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea is on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned because they didn't do it by faith. God didn't call them to do that. And so the, the Hebrews stepped out into dry land because God had told them to. The Egyptians were listening to other voices, and they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It takes faith to follow the battle plan that Joshua was given. Just march around the city blowing horns and shouting. But by faith, Rahab, the prostitute who was in Jericho, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So she provided them hospitality, and she also gave them important information. And that important information was very simple. It was, we have lived in fear and dread of you since we heard of what happened in Egypt and then what happened to Og and Sihon, the giant kings that you destroyed when you came out of Egypt. We have lived in fear and dread. Why is that important? Because that's exactly the opposite of how the spies interpreted the land. These people are giants. They're too big for us. We can't do this. And therefore, they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't have the faith to go into the land because they misinterpreted it. They, they saw the evidence of their eyes, and they listened only to that one witness. And they made a decision and a judgment 
and it was a wrong judgment. It was a tragically wrong judgment because it condemned the people to being in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Rahab says, we've been in fear of you. We've been waiting for you to come. And we have not been waiting so that we can join you in battle. We have waited in fear and dread of your God. They had a greater fear of God than, than God's people did. And so Rahab provided the welcome, hid the spies, and then helped them get out of town in, in so many of the same ways that, that Abraham took in the three men, provided for them, and then went with them on their way to make sure that they got away safely and were unmolested. Rahab did the same. She provided for them, and then she gave them the exit plan they needed to get safely out of Jericho. So she's commended for her faith. She believed in the God of these Hebrews in such a way that that she believed that they would conquer the city of Jericho, and, and she asked that she be saved. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He said, look, I don't have time to go through all these examples. There are so many that we could go on and on and on. He says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. These are all things that, he, that, that they did. And if you're familiar with these people's lives, then, then you can sort of identify as you go along. Ah, that's Daniel. This is Joshua. This is Gideon. These are who these people are. He says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Think about the, the widow that um, Elijah went to and, and raised her son from the dead. Elisha does the same. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Think of Elijah. Think about the prophets that were hidden in the time of Elijah. Think about David hiding in a cave from Saul and all these other things. And, and what, what the writer of Hebrews says is that ultimately the world wasn't worthy of these people. And it, 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 these are all, if you want to talk about divisions, because they chose to follow the living God, we see all these divisions, right? We see the divisions about being tortured. Why were they tortured? They weren't tortured for political problems or political reasons. They were tortured because of their faith and and their refusal to bend and bow the knee to any other god or any other power, including pharaohs, including Nebuchadnezzar, including you know whoever that they were supposed to be forced to worship. They said no. They drew a line in the sand and said, I will not do that. I will give my worship only to the living God who has proven himself over and over and over throughout history. And so that, that the world wasn't worthy because the world hated them. And what the, is the unspoken part of this is, is, is that you'll be hated too. That's the reason he lists these people and he lists the difficulties that they endured. Because first you get sort of their conquests, 
right? They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, blah, blah, blah. But then we go to the other side. They were tortured. They were mocked and flogged, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn into all those. So we get the, the, the opposites of these things. What he's saying is, is that sometimes it works out gloriously to be a part of God's plan. Sometimes it doesn't. He says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So he's pointing to the Old Testament people. He's pointing to those heroes of the faith in Judaism, and he says they didn't receive the fullness of the promise. The the kingdom of God hasn't come on earth, hasn't been fully established yet, because we were a part of God's plan as well. So these people couldn't see the fullness of the promise because of us, because God loved us so much that he wanted us to participate in that as well, that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect. And we can see sort of that, that same image in Revelation 6, 9 to 11. He says, when he, the angel, opened, or the, the, the lamb, opened the seventh, a fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, we went through hell. Our lives were a misery, and these people made it a misery. How long until your judgment comes? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You sign up for that? Probably not. Probably not. Maybe along the way, you, were, you maybe you came to the Lord believing maybe the prosperity gospel or something like that, and you come to the Lord and you believe that if I do this, then life's going to work out perfectly. And then maybe along the way, life happened. Difficulty happened. Things that you never imagined happened. And that dream, that false belief, had to die in order for faith to become real. Because you began to hope for the right thing rather than the wrong thing. You began to hope for eternal treasure rather than earthly treasure. You began to see the cross in a different way. You began to understand the suffering of Christ in a different way. You began to see injustice in a different way because you knew justice is coming. There will be justice, ultimately. And more than that, more than justice, mercy. Mercy. Because that's what I need. I need mercy more than I need justice because I'm a sinner. So I don't get justice in the end. Justice would be death because that's what I deserve because I'm a sinner. What I get is mercy, and I begin to, to long for mercy more than justice in my own life, and then I, then I begin to show it to others because I, be, I become the person that I truly want to be true. I want to be merciful because I'm a person who needs mercy. And Jesus promised that if we show it and if we forgive, then, then he'll show mercy and forgive. And I need that. That's what I need more than anything in this life is I need God's love and I need his mercy and I need his grace. And I need it every single day of my life. That's the thing about grace, right? It's only available to those who know that they need it. But it's available in 
measure greater than anything we can imagine when we recognize and confess our need for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And then he gives us all these things, and we begin to see the cross differently. It's not a way of opening up a better life for me. No, it's, it's, it's a way of God revealing the depth of his love for those who are created in his image. And the resurrection tells us that the promise is there's justice in the end, that God's kingdom will be established and Jesus will come again, and that will happen at that time. And so that's the comfort in that passage that I just read from the Revelation, and it's the comfort in the passage here from the Hebrews, is that, that, that we are waiting for the fullness of time so that God can bring more and more and more people into his kingdom. And that's what we need to fix our eyes on. God's still adding to his kingdom daily until his coming again. And so during that time, what we want is to participate with him in the building of his kingdom and, the, and to see others come into that kingdom. And we need to do it with the love of Christ compelling us to share those truths. He finishes up with, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, whose faith attests to truth, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also be like them, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And why does it require endurance? Because it's hard. Because it's hard. And we need to run with endurance all the way to the end. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you would appear there with him and be welcomed into those heavenly places, then you will run with endurance the race that is set before you. And we do it with this cloud of witnesses, he says, cheering us on, providing the example for us, providing inspiration for us to continue to run that race. And that's who we need to be for one another. That's the most important takeaway I want you to have today is is that, that that's who we need to be for one another. Not just that invisible cloud of witnesses. We need a visible cloud of witnesses around us, cheering us on, encouraging us, asking us, how you doing? What's going on with you and the Lord? Are you persevering well? We need that way more than we need to talk about politics, more than we need to talk about sports. I'm talking about things I'm guilty of, so I'm not picking. So we need to be focused on him. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I have this wonderful image that a friend of mine gave me years ago, and that is their their son was a cross-country runner. And, and he ended up being a good cross-country runner, but he had to grow into that. So when he was in high school, when he's in the ninth grade, he's running, and he, he did pretty well for a ninth grader. And then he, he got better and better as he got bigger and stronger and all that kind of stuff. And now he is, he's his senior year. He's, he's never won a meet on his own. He's never been first in a race. Well, this day, everything came together. And for the last, his mother was cheering him on. And over the last quarter of a mile, his mother, who was a runner herself, ran <laughs> with him all the way to the finish line, cheering him on the entire way to his first victory. And he was embarrassed. And later, when she realized what she had done, she was embarrassed because she felt like an idiot for doing it. 
But the image that I see there is Jesus cheering us on, running with us all the way to the finish line if we'll allow him and if we'll take joy and delight in his company and his presence.